What if the Marine Corps says you can't go to a church if you believe that transgenderism is evil? You say that will never happen. Who would have ever thought that what is happening is happening? What are those who call darkness light, who call sweet bitter? The spirit of Antichrist is growing in our day. There's no other explanation. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a survey of the prophecies outlined in Chapter 7 of the Book of Daniel, and today we come to the conclusion of a message entitled, Understanding the Vision. Within this passage, we are pointed to a series of kingdoms which will rule the earth and we see that ultimately Jesus will return and triumphantly claim the throne. Before this occurs, however, there will be a time of great tribulation in which a character known as the Antichrist will come to power. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy now as he gives a little insight into this Antichrist, which is addressed in verse 24. Now I should say that there is a lot of time and energy that has been spent in the history of the church on identifying the Antichrist. In the first century, many believers thought it was Nero because of the way he harshly treated Christians, and he made a claim to divinity. In AD 81, Emperor Domitian, some thought he was the Antichrist because he also claimed to be God and demanded worship. In the Middle Ages, many said it was Muhammad because if you didn't repent at the sword, you were killed, just like ISIS is doing today. And many so-called Christians defected from the faith, and they gave their allegiance to Islam. Uh, Emperor Frederick II and Pope Gregory IX uh, took great pleasure in calling each other the Antichrist. Uh, During the time of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther said the Pope was the Antichrist. Some years later, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, a confession that is used by the Reformed Church today, They wrote in 1646 that the Pope, speaking of the one who was alive in their day, was the Antichrist. Obviously, Article 25 was wrong. There was no other head of the church than the Lord Jesus Christ. I say amen to that. In no sense can the Pope of Rome be the head of it. I say amen to that. Rather, he is that Antichrist speaking of the Pope of Rome, the man of sin, the son of damnation, who glorifies himself as opposed to Christ in everything related to God. Now, they thought it was the Pope who was alive then. Now, it may be a coming Pope, because we're going to see that with the Antichrist, there's going to be a one-world religion, but he won't be the Antichrist. In this one world religion, the Bible says, as we're going to study in the Revelation, will come from a city that is built on seven hills. In either case, the Pope in 1646 was not the Antichrist. In more contemporary times, some said Napoleon was the Antichrist. Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, Khrushchev. When I was a new Christian, it was popular to say Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. Some said later on it was Reagan. Some today say it's Obama. And some have tried to key off of the number 666, the number of the Antichrist. And in many languages, like Greek and Hebrew, every letter of the alphabet has a numerical equivalent. So in Greek, alpha is one, beta is two, and so forth. 
And the same is true in a case language like Latin. And if you take the crown that the Pope wears and the inscription that's written on its side and you manipulate it and you play around with it, some have come up with the number 666. That would be like, well, my last name is Brogi, six letters, B-R-O-G-G-I. My middle name is Joseph, six letters. My first name is Carl, but in Spanish it's Carlos, so 666. There you have it, all right? I mean, you can play all kinds of games. The fact is, is we do not know who the Antichrist is, and no one will know until he is revealed. But while we do not know who he is, we know what he is like. And there are at least three character traits that he underscores for us. Number one, the Antichrist will be a blasphemer. We learn that in verse 25. He will speak out against the Most High. We've already read back in verse 20. He had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts. He's a great braggart. Hmm. Second Thessalonians describes him in the second chapter. He is the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. The Antichrist will commit the ultimate act of blasphemy. In the middle, dead center, Jesus tells us, as Daniel tells us, in the dead center point of the tribulation, he'll go into a rebuilt temple and call himself God. He's a blasphemer. He's also the persecutor. Verse 25, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. That word wear down or wear out in some of your Bibles is a Hebrew word that means to beat down, to oppress, to harass. And he's going to deal with God's people in a brutal way. Revelation 13, 7, put it in the margin next to this verse. Just listen. It was given to him, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to them. You say, well, wait a minute. Who are these saints that Daniel and the Revelation speaks of? I thought the church has been raptured. Remember, there are three groups of saints in the Bible. There's Old Testament saints, there's church saints, and there's tribulation saints. There's Old Testament saints, Psalm 34, verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. There's church saints. You can call me St. Carl if you want. That's what the Scripture would say. And if you're born again, you too are a holy one, not based on your performance, but the righteousness God gave you and imputed to you as a gift by His grace and mercy. But there's coming a future group of people who will be saints after the rapture of the church who are converted. And the Antichrist will wear down the saints. And we will study in the Revelation by seizure, by starving, by beheading, there's going to be a great slaughter. He's a persecutor. Third, he will be an innovator. He will be, I mean, he will have solutions like no one else will have. Verse 25, he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. Now, we're not told specifically how. Maybe in terms of times, he will erase the B.C. before Christ, A.D., not after death, Anno Domini, Latin. This is 2016, Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord. Maybe he'll erase that distinction to smush every remembrance of the Lord Jesus. But he will also make alterations in law, not laws. Some of your translations say laws. Look in the New American Standard. It's law, singular in the Hebrew text. The NASB is so accurate. The New King James also puts it as law, singular. And this particular word, law, doth in Hebrew, is used repeatedly in the Bible of God's moral law. How will he make alterations? We're not told. 
Maybe uh, he'll try to do what the French did during the time of the French Revolution where they tried to create a 10-day work week to obliterate the worship of God on Sunday. Maybe they will try to obliterate, especially since we're dealing largely with Jews here, Sabbat, the Sabbath, the seventh day that they worshiped on. We don't know, but I want to tell you the spirit of Antichrist, it's already at work. Now remember, John tells us, 1 John 2, that since the ascension of Christ and then the sending of the Spirit on Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, we entered into the last days. The Bible speaks not just of the last days, but latter times, as Daniel will speak of, as Paul will speak of, what we might call the last of the last days. And the Scripture unfolds that while the Spirit of Antichrist, that Spirit that is against the Lord Jesus has always been at work, it's going to increase and express itself broader and wider and more powerfully until it is embodied in a man after the rapture. Our own President of the United States said while in Britain this week, oh, the people of North Carolina are good people, but they are mistaken. They should not have passed a law that would prevent transgender people from using our bathrooms. By the way, I've shopped at Target for the last time. One of the political leaders said, oh, you know, let people use whatever bathroom they want. I don't want some pervert coming into the bathroom where my granddaughter is. Not on your life. But what is happening? A man got fired this week because he spoke out against transgender bathrooms. People are fearful the same for bivocational pastors, which many are. Or you work for a company and you preach in the pulpit that transgenderism is wrong. There's no such thing. I hope you realize it. Sex is not determined between your ears. It's determined between your legs. There's no such thing. Not at all. But if you speak out against it, some pastors, I think, will lose their jobs in some companies. What if the Marine Corps says you can't go to a church if you believe that transgenderism is evil. You say that will never happen. Who would have ever thought that what is happening is happening? What are those who call darkness light, who call sweet bitter? The spirit of Antichrist is growing in our day. There's no other explanation. Verse 25, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That's the same truth as recorded in Revelation 13 and verse 5. And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Now, if you've studied Bible prophecy, then you know the phrase time, times, and half a time is very, very important. Unlike English, languages like Hebrew and Aramaic have what we call a singular, a dual, and a uh, plural. A singular refers to one, a dual refers to only two, and a plural refers to three or more. So the Hebrew text is very, very precise. Now we know from Daniel 9 in the book of Revelation that the coming tribulation period is seven years, and so half of the tribulation is three and a half years. And right in the midpoint, Daniel will tell us, Jesus will quote it, when the Antichrist commits the abomination of desolation, there will be left 
42 months or three and a half years. Now, we don't really have a dual in English. We have a singular or a plural, though we can kind of manipulate a dual. If I said to you, well, I had all of my friends over last night, both of them, I, I would be saying, well, you know, I only have two friends, so to speak. Uh, one of the things I always do when I look at children's Bibles, I want to see how accurate they are. I go to Genesis and I go to the flaming sword of fire and I want to see if there's one angel or ten angels. There's only two because in Hebrew it is a duel. Now cherubim is like our word deer. Deer can refer to one deer or all herd of deer. Context determines. Well, there's no ambiguity in Hebrew. A duel is a duel. So you have a time, that's one year. Times, it's a duel, that's two years. And half a time, that's three and a half years. And we're going to see it, that God has a prophetic schedule in the ninth chapter, 490 years for Israel. 483 of those years have already transpired. There's seven years left. The clock stopped when Israel rejected the Messiah, but God is going to start the clock back up after the rapture of the church. I'm getting ahead of myself, forget that. Um, there's coming a time called the time of Jacob's trouble. And John tells us in John's gospel, the reason God stopped the clock was because of Israel's unbelief. In fact, Jesus said in John 5, in verse 43, speaking to the Jewish people, I have come in my father's name and you have not received me, but another will come in his own name and you will receive him. They didn't receive the Lord Jesus, but when this one world leader comes, who's an innovator, who will have a solution for the heartache in the Middle East, they're going to believe him until the midpoint of the tribulation. They will be given into his hands for a time, times, and half a times. So first half, three and a half, second half, three and a half. This next slide, you see some of the references, 42 months, 1,260 days, time, times, and half of times, three and a half years given in the Word of God. But, verse 26, look at the first word, but the court will sit for judgment and dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. When is that going to happen? When will the court sit in judgment? Verse 27 reveals, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and his dominion will serve and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Praise the Lord. This will all happen when Jesus shows up at the end of the tribulation. God will fulfill this down to the smallest jot of a pen. Listen, all of the kingdoms, because we're looking in hindsight. Daniel was looking in the future. He describes what's going to happen to Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. We've seen so much of that already fulfilled to the smallest letter of the law. If he fulfilled it that way, that's how he's going to fulfill it for the revived Roman Empire and for the fifth kingdom when Jesus comes. And that brings us just quickly to Daniel's personal reaction. It's given on two levels. First, we discover that Daniel was physically drained. Verse 28, at this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale. Though the final outcome is very encouraging, the ferocity of the attack that's going to come by this little horn, this little one, shook him to the core. His thoughts were greatly alarming him. His face grew pale. The King James renders it. His countenance changed. And most of us have witnessed this reaction in people where they become so frightened 
the nerves running uh, from their brain into their face changes the circulation and they grow pale. If you are a darker skinned person, you grow kind of an ashen look. Daniel grew pale. It shook his sheath because of what was going on in his spirit. Secondly, Daniel was spiritually silent. He was spiritually silent. Notice again the rest of the verse. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. He's almost sick, but rather than call attention to himself and rather than be some spiritual braggart about telling you how great he is because of what God has shown him, he kept the matter to himself. Now, what should a healthy study of prophecy do for you? Let me suggest two applications as we leave. Number one, this passage teaches me that a proper understanding of Bible prophecy should not lead us to apathy, but to action. You know, I meet Christians who are so consumed with Bible prophecy that they're not effective in the here and now. They're so consumed with the then and later, the here and now are meaningless to them. When Audrey and I were first married, there was a couple in our church And they told us they weren't going to have any children because they believed the end was so near they didn't want to bring children into this world. Look, that's disobedience. Be fruitful and multiply, period. And I'm sure 35, 40 years later, they have deep regrets. I remember speaking to a person who said, no, I don't want to give to the church building fund. I said, oh, is there a problem? Well, we're going to be raptured so soon. It's a waste of money. Hmm. Okay. Some people are so heavenly minded, they are no earthly good. But let's ask a question about Daniel. When did this vision take place? Well, we're told in the opening verse, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now, Belshazzar, because it's documented in the book of Daniel, will rule for 15 years. And so this vision happened in the first year, 14 years before the handwriting appears on the wall, the night his kingdom is overthrown by Medo-Persia. So the vision in this chapter takes place five years after the events of chapter 4 and 14 years before the events of chapter 5. So think about it. Remember, when you come to the sixth chapter, you don't meet him as a teenager around 16, 17, 18 years of old. You meet him as an old man in the lion's den. He's about 85, 90 years old. But what did Daniel do with prophecy? He had a burden. He had a compassion for King Nebuchadnezzar. How on earth did King Nebuchadnezzar ever repent and call God great because Daniel witnessed to him? Even Darius, when he threw him into the lion's den, remember we so carefully noted it, the compassion and the respect that he had towards that king who threw him in there because he cared about his soul. See, it moved Daniel not to apathy. It moved him to action. One of the great Bible teachers of the 1930s and 40s was Dr. Harry Ironside. And one of the things he did, of course, was he pastored Moody Church in Chicago. And he did a series on the rapture, the coming tribulation, the second coming. And one of his parishioners came up to him and he said, Pastor, I hold to the exact same position you hold. He said, wonderful. Does my position, does the Bible's position hold you? What did he mean? In other words, it's not enough to have some kind of carnal excitement of the end times. 
Does it hold you? Has it gripped your soul? Has it shaken your sheath as it did Daniel's because his spirit was so moved? Secondly, a proper understanding of Bible prophecy should not produce arrogance, but compassion. It should produce compassion. I don't find Daniel thinking, well, in the end, we're going to rule. God's people are going to come out on top. So who cares about the rest of these pagans? No, he cared about people. In fact, when he will come to the 12th chapter, we will say, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever. Listen, if you study Bible prophecy, if you really understand Bible prophecy, when you understand the horror of the coming Antichrist and the persecution that he will bring, when you understand the terrible nature of the coming tribulation, when you think of the coming eternal wrath of God, it should cause you to warn men to flee the wrath to come. I've read a lot of biographies on my shelf in my library. I got a section this wide of Christian biographies. And one that was particularly meaningful to me was a biography written by C.T. Studd. He lived in the late 1800s. He was a medical doctor and he ministered in Africa. Now, he had been raised in the uh, lap of comfort, a very, very wealthy young man who grew up in a large English estate with his brother. And uh, as he began to study Bible prophecy, he said his life as a Christian was changed. And in his biography, he notes three different times in his life that I'd like to read from you, where God used Bible prophecy. First, he speaks of his backslidden state, not some kind of immorality or debauchery, but that he said his heart was cold and that he really wasn't witnessing to people. And he gave the reason why. He said, instead of going and telling others of the love of Christ, I was selfish and kept the knowledge to myself. The result was that gradually my love began to grow cold and the love of the world began to come in. I spent six years in that unhappy backslidden state. And then he writes after his brother George dies. And understand, George Studd and C.T. Studd were two of the best-known athletes in the United Kingdom in this day. So he loses his brother, and he says, now what is all the popularity of the world worth to George? What is all the fame and flattery worth? What is it worth to possess all the riches in the world when a man comes to face eternity? And a voice seemed to answer from Scripture, vanity of vanities, all is vanities. A few days later, he writes in his journal, God has given me far more than is sufficient to keep my body and soul together. So how can I spend the best years of my life in working for myself and in the honors and pleasures of this world while thousands and thousands of souls are perishing every day without ever hearing the name of Christ? And then what moved him is he read a tract by an atheist. Listen to these words. The atheist said, did I firmly believe, as millions say they do, that the knowledge and practice of religion in this life influences destiny in another? Religion would mean to me everything. I would cast away earthly enjoyments as dross, earthly cares as follies, and earthly thoughts and feelings as vanity. Religion would be my first waking thought and my last image before sleep sank me into unconsciousness. I should labor in its cause alone. I would make take thought for Tomorrow alone, for eternity alone, I would esteem one soul gained for heaven a life worth of suffering. 
Earthly consequences, writes the atheist, should never stay my hand nor seal my lips. Earth, its joys, its griefs would occupy no moment of my thoughts. I would strive to look upon eternity alone and the immoral, immortal souls around me soon to be everlastingly happy or everlastingly miserable. He mocks Christians as he continues. I would go forth to the world and preach to it in season and out of season. And my text would be, for what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And forfeits his soul. After reading that, C.T. Studd wrote, I had once saw that this was the truly consistent Christian life. When I looked back upon my life and I saw how inconsistent it had been, I therefore determined from that time forth my life should be consistent. I cannot tell you what joy it gave me to bring the first soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have tasted almost all the pleasures this world can give. I do not suppose there is one that I have not experienced, but I can tell you that those pleasures were as nothing compared to the joy of saving one soul for Christ. And so he goes to Africa. He sells everything he has, reaching the African people, this medical doctor, with the gospel. Now, if you're a believer and you really understand prophecy, you understand what's ahead, not just in the short run, but in the eternal run, it should change your life. There's not a person in this room who can't be involved, not a person within the sound of my voice who cannot be involved in bringing people to Yeshua Masiach, Jesus the Messiah. Some of you could take someone through the gospel this week. Some of you could do something as simple as invite them to church next week. But all of us can be involved, and we should be. But if you're here today and you're not saved, what lies ahead for you is not pleasant. And if the rapture takes place, the Scripture is clear, as we will see, you will not believe. You won't get it right then. You will not believe because you reject the truth in this day. In that day, you will believe what is false. And you will spend an eternity wishing that you had changed your mind or repented. And you will have no excuse for what is in front of you as horrible and as just as it is. Because the God who set the penalty paid it completely in the Messiah. So what will you do? Our Father... We thank you today for your mercy, for your grace in Jesus. I pray today for someone here who's never been saved. Thank you that whoever will call upon the name of Yeshua, Jesus will be saved. Help someone in simple childlike faith just say, Lord Jesus, save me. And Father, I pray for those of us who know you that we would never be ashamed of you that no matter how bad it may get in our day, that we will never call good evil and evil good, that we will stand for what is right, even if it costs us our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen again to today's study from Daniel chapter 7, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also call us at 877-787-7478 and request program DAN10 on CD or DVD. 
Join us again tomorrow as we begin a look at Antiochus and the Antichrist. Join us then as we search the scriptures.